This podcast is not intended to be an investigative report, and all opinions stated herein are opinions strictly from the hosts and are not affiliated with any law enforcement entity. This is a true crime podcast and may contain information that may be disturbing to some listeners. Audience discretion is advised. Welcome to Vintage Homicide, a true crime podcast being presented to you by two forensic scientists with a passion for the vintage lifestyle. We are your hosts, Ms. Ruby Wild and Ms. Mayday. We will bring you historic murders with special insight into the era and the forensics involved to look back at what crime solving may have been like. This podcast is benefiting the 501c3 Bombshell Betty's Calendar for Charity, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to raise support and awareness for veterans' charities through community involvement, photography, and pinups. This is not a tale about cookies, but just the crumbles. Oh, I like you know. that. Least <laughs> favorite part of cookies. <laughs> so cute. And this is a case that we're just going to like seriously dive right in on a beach. <laughs> You'll get it. Got okay. it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Give it to me. On August 20th, 1920, we're at a place in England called The Crumbles. Ooh. All right. Now, immediately, we're going to have Miss Mayday jump in. Okay. Crumbles. Yeah. Again, so we're based, obviously, in the United States, hence our accents. Um, so I, I had to look, I had to look up the crumbles cause it's a thing. It's a place. You can just say the crumbles and people know in England where you're referring to. So it is referring to Southern England, uh, basically in Sussex. This is like way South of London along the English channel. It's a stretch of beach between, and I'm probably not going to pronounce these towns correctly. Uh, once it's you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't. Yeah, I don't have a British accent. Sorry. Um, Pevensey or Pevensey, and which is to the north of the Crumbles, and Eastbourne is basically to the south. Of oh, that one was wrong. I could hear it right now. Eastbourne. <laughs> I, I don't know. B o u r n e. No, I'm just being a jerk. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Eastbourne. It's basically in. Sussex region of gotcha. England. Okay. So we are basically Southern England on the shores of the English Channel. We'll get into it more uh, as we get into the story about like the structure of the crumbles. Okay. But for right now, a young teenage boy was running along the crumbles and tripped on a rock. He turned and looked back, as we all do when you trip and fall. You look back at the evil offender that is standing <laughs> behind you. <laughs> Even if it's just a shadow or the pattern of the carpet, like my husband says, I trip on those darn tricky carpet folds. Right. Rude. No, he says the pattern, not even a fold. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. I'm fine. I'm not a klutz. I'm totally a klutz. Okay. So it wasn't a rock, but it was a human foot. He ran and told his mother who notified the police. The Scotland Yard arrived at the scene and they uncovered the body of a young woman whose head had been severely beaten. They also found a heavy iron stone covered in blood. So, iron stone. Right. So, I'll take it from here. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, the Crumples is essentially a shingle beach. And I kind of had to look this up as well because I was like, what is a shingle beach? Yeah. Um, We don't have those here and we've already we've we've already given away that we are california coast beach line yes and 
No, we have like sand. sand. Have- <laughs> yeah. Cliffs. Yeah. Like- so a shingle beach, it's just because we're really not used to this word shingle because we don't, we think shingles are things on roads, right? Or a disease. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, so apparently sh- people. shingle is also what they refer to as like pebbly. So okay. if you imagine a pebbly oh, we beach, do have those. Yes. Made up of rocks basically that are resistant to erosion. So a really rocky beach essentially is a shingle beach. And it's basically a geologist's dream beach vacation, right? And yeah. these are rare, apparently, like in terms of all the beaches in the world, shingle beaches are rare. They occur in higher latitudes and essentially they were once covered by ice sheets and glaciers during the Pleistocene. So that's why I say it's a geologist stream beach vacation. Well, yeah. Wait, so when you say that they're just like stone beaches, are they the smooth ones? Yes, like the pebbles that you would yeah. skip, like those type of stones. Because I ran into one of those when we were going through France, I want to say. Nice, yes. Oh, nice oh my is gosh. a shingle beach. And it sounds so amazing when that water goes and the rocks go. And if you ever have a chance, please go because it's amazing. I even recorded it because it's like... A soothing sound. But yes. yes. So apparently, so that's, that's what a shingle beach is. And in England, apparently, has a ton of these. What the? Okay. <laughs> so, but yeah, like the beach in Nice, it's, okay. it's, it's a okay. pebble beach. It's it's a shingle beach. Um, well, and picture we have totally different. Yeah. We have them here in, in California as well, but um, they're kind of slightly different. Like the glass beach that we have <gasps> yes. is sort of, sort of that concept, except for... Instead of being caused by, you know, geological events, it was caused by us dumping a bunch of glass in the ocean. I still Um, haven't been there. I need to go. It's really cool. But uh, essentially, it's the same concept. It's over time, essentially, these rocks were the only thing that are remaining from those ice layers that covered of, you know, the land at the time. Um, So amazing. So they're remnants of, you know, of the Pleistocene. And so when the police, the Scotland Yard, discovered this ironstone covered in blood, essentially it was just a large rock because it is a rocky beach. Um, and it was mostly made up of iron or iron carbonate, a very, very heavy, because it contains iron, a very heavy rock, which will come into play later. Okay. Is it, um, I know this sounds really stupid, but... Um, because it's an ironstone on a shingle beach and the shingles are like those stones that are super smooth now, would it also be smooth or would it be like, yeah. So I looked, I, when I looked this up, I saw some photos of some iron stones at another English beach. They are sort of smooth, uh, but they're larger in size. And apparently in shingle beaches, there is a predictable gradation of the sizes of stones and they go from like sandy to small closest to the waterline. Right. And then as you progressively get further away from where the waterline is, they get bigger and less smooth sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But water. Yeah. So uh, they're still generally smooth because this erosion has happened over, you know, hundreds of years. So they are still considered relatively smooth, but these iron stones, the reason why you can like distinguish them and see them as different than the others is because their color tends to be like rust colored. 
Oh, okay. Because it's iron. Okay. okay. <laughs> right. So they're like redder and uh, reddish brown in appearance, and they're heavy. This is what Scotland Yard, you know, when they're doing their investigation, they come across when they're doing their investigation and they're removing her body from underneath the stones, they see this uh, heavy iron stone that's covered in blood. I love the fact that you say that it's like rusty, like colored and it's covered in blood. Can I tell you when I'm searching for blood at a crime scene, how irritating it is to have all these rusty objects around because you have to test everything. Yeah. Yeah. Like, cause they're rust. essentially the same color as dried blood. Majority of rust and blood that is like one month to like seven months is almost indistinguishable. Yeah. Like it's, it's so crazy. So I'm really impressed that they were able to find this stone covered in blood. I really am. Unless it was like super damp, drippy blood, in which case like, <laughs> good job. But what do I know? <laughs> yeah. And I have no idea like how far this was. Cause like, again, we're talking about a beach covered in rocks. Yeah. The whole thing is, is not sand, but rocks. Yeah. So they found this one stone that was covered in blood. Well, I mean, that's our job. Like, right. And I hope that you guys appreciate that we bring in our real life experiences with all of this, but that is literally what we would do is canvas the entire beach little by little in systematic patterns, like gradient patterns, make sure that there's no other evidence located anywhere within this beach that might not be like correlated or not because people can run in any direction. This is why we are able to catch criminals. But so for them to find this one rock, yeah, that's their job. <laughs> yeah, I'm just very impressed, especially at the time. I mean, uh, this is yeah. again, 19, we're talking 1920. 1920. Yeah, Scotland Yard. And we know at this time, forensics is kind of in its early stages of being more like structured and taken seriously as a, an actual scientific discipline, right? Completely. So because they found this iron stone covered in blood and they found the body, the coroner was able to determine that the woman had been dead for at least one day and she was transported to their mortuary. The postmortem showed that she had been struck in the face with what appeared to be a stick and then she was struck with the iron stone. And that is what caused her death, not the stick. She had jaw fractures, missing teeth, a fracture to her temple, and a severe laceration on her head. Can we please clarify what a <laughs> laceration is? The definition of a laceration, this is one of my biggest pet peeves. We are laceration, Miss Mayday. Yes, I know this is one of your pet peeves. Um, so this is to do with forensic pathology, wound pathology, right? And um, emergency medicine generally describes any break in the skin as a laceration, but it's forensically and technically incorrect because a laceration is defined as a tear in tissue caused by shearing or crushing force. Therefore, force trauma. Right. Therefore, laceration is a result of blunt force trauma um, as the mechanism. And uh, essentially, these lacerations are commonly over like bony prominences. So if you think about like your eyebrow or your orbital area, so when they bone, jawbone, skull, right? And the way that they look, they're very irregularly shaped, and they're like abraded. Um, at the margins, or sometimes there's bruising around the margins. And they're caused by 
hard objects, right? Blood force trauma. So a hard object like a pipe or a rock or the ground, all of these things would cause lacerations. And this is not to be confused with what is commonly referred to as a cut or an incised wound, which is oftentimes what people get lacerations confused with. So a cut or an incised wound is produced by a sharp edge and it's usually longer than it is deep because if it's the other way around, then it's a stab wound. Um, and that's a, that's another sharp force injury, but it's different than a cut. So sharp force mechanism of injury, it, it causes a very clean and sharp wound edge as opposed to a laceration, which basically causes tissue bridging, which kind of looks like little strands that go from one end of the edge of the laceration to the other. So, so kind of picture if you were to pull apart a grilled cheese sandwich. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. There you go. Um, so the cheese that sticks to the bread and the further you pull it apart, the more you have like that sinewy, like pulley. Sorry for ruining grilled cheese sandwiches for anybody. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But <laughs> that is what a laceration appears as, how it's still connected The tissue bridging. Yes. Yes. So that like, yeah, that is essentially like quintessential hallmark of a laceration as opposed to a cut, which would have a very smooth edge, right? Because you are cutting now picture instead of pulling apart the grilled cheese, you completely separate the grilled cheese with a knife. Yeah. Voila. Yeah. So this is why this is my... Yeah. It's from a forensic perspective, it's really important to use the correct terminology when describing wounds. And so in this particular case, it's very like important that it was classified as a laceration because then it put us in the realm of blunt force as the mechanism, right? Um, As opposed to sharp force, uh, which is caused by, you know, a sharp edged object like a knife. So when you're thinking about weapons or things that could have caused this wound, it completely puts you in a com- like a different category. So that's why it's very significant to utilize the correct terms. And we do use wound pathologies to look for murder weapons. Like it, it, it's part of our job. So if you do not describe it properly, we have no clue what we're looking for. And that's super important. So when they said that it was a laceration, that does mean that most likely it was caused by that iron stone or this stick. And it was also shown that she had not been sexually assaulted. At this time, a local landlady noticed that her female renter never returned from the previous day and she notified the police immediately. I don't know why or how, like, I travel a lot. And even if you're in like an Airbnb or a bed and breakfast, I don't know that somebody would report me missing if I didn't show up for a day. Like, yeah, you know, um, (laughs) I kind of was thinking about that too. And then I know you're going to get more into it regarding um, this victim and, you know, and her age and kind of like why this would matter. Um, However, So not to spoil that or anything, but I kind of thought about this too. And when I was traveling in Europe, it is a little different. So the place that I stayed, for example, in France, um, the owner and proprietor of the small boutique hotel or bed and breakfast that I was staying at, like 
literally was there every day. And as I would come in and out, like he was very aware of like me leaving and returning. And I think it was just, it's just a common thing in these types of um, places. They're not, they're not like hotels where the staff stays out of your business intentionally tries not to like notice you. Right. Cause they want to give you that privacy in these type of places. I think it's very common for you to interact um, and maybe even have meals with the, the landlord. So kind of love it. Yeah. That makes a bit more sense. So they notified the police and the police, knowing that they had an unidentified woman in the morgue, they requested that this landlady come and see if the decedent was her renter. She confirmed that the decedent was indeed her renter, Irene. The police then notified Irene's mother and aunt that she was deceased. Now, Irene's story begins August 16th. Irene Monroe was a 17-year-old student that lived with her parents in London. She was invited to spend time with her family on holiday, but instead she changed her mind and went solo to the coastline from London on her own. This was not the first time that she traveled alone, so her parents had no problem letting her holiday at Eastbourne. At this time of her life, she worked as a typist and she was a responsible, attractive, dark-haired woman. When she arrived, she rented a room at 393 Seaside. She was able to be at the Crumbles for two weeks before rejoining her family on their holiday. She spent a few days exploring the area, walking down the beaches and through the town. And on the 19th, she befriended a couple of local men and she shared some drinks with them at a local pub. At 3 p.m., Irene let her landlady know that uh, her plans were to head to Hampton Park with her new friends and she left to meet the men. She grabbed her green velour jacket and left. Numerous witnesses saw Irene in the company of two men, stating that she was walking arm-in-arm with them towards the Crumbles. These two men were Jack Field and William Gray, two local men. The witnesses remember the sight so well due to Irene's vibrant green velour coat. She had not been noticed anywhere after this point in the day. Police went to interview these two men, and they stated they were there with their friend, Maud Baxter, at Pevensey. Ah! I see it too. Pevensey, <laughs> Pevensey. I I don't know. Well, I'm sure we'll have some English person correct no, us. I'm so sorry. Um, I didn't think I'd have to say it too, but I did. Um, <laughs> they denied being at the Crumbles that day. Maud, for her part, completely denied being with the boys, stating that she was at work at this time. This was confirmed by her employer and co-workers, and police went back to Jack and William, who were arrested and charged with the willful murder of Irene. Their trial lasted five days, which included taking the jury to the beach where Irene was found. We don't do this anymore. Like, yeah, it was a very common thing back, like, back yeah, then. Yeah, like you, you take people to the scene of the crime. Now we have photographs and documentation and things like that. And we even currently have like what's called a 360 scan that you can literally walk people through virtually your crime scene. But back in the day, I guess you being there was your 360 walkthrough. All evidence against the men was circumstantial and there were no witnesses to the crime. And stacking against the boys, though there were eyewitness accounts of Irene being in their presence on the way to the location of where her body was found. They had also attempted a false alibi for no other known reason. The pair had earlier in the day been to the pub, 
claiming they were short on money. But when they returned later in the day, they were flush. So the patrons noted how William was carrying a stick and wearing a gray suit earlier that day. But when he returned in the evening, he was wearing a different dark suit. Since both men were being tried together, as the law at the time stated it did not matter which defendant delivered the fatal blow since they were acting together, it took one hour for the jury to return with a guilty verdict for both, with a recommendation for mercy since the murder did not appear to be premeditated. The judge did not care um, about the leniency or the mercy, and he declared a death sentence. During their appeals, they each blamed each other, stating that the other had actually confessed. And their motive was simply money. They stole the money from her wallet on that fateful day. And the appeal was rejected and both men were hanged in 1921 at Wandsworth. Now, you may be wondering what that case has to do with forensics or why we're here and why it's so short. And the reason is that's not the main case. It's just a prelude to the event that happened four years later in the same exact location. Oh, okay. Interesting. So we have this one case, this case of Irene, poor 17-year-old Irene, mm -hmm. um, having been found murdered uh, at the Crumbles. Yes. And so you're saying that there's another case that happens four years later, also at the Crumbles. And so now we get into our main case. Okay. Jesse Mahone was married to a man named Patrick since 1910. She had known her husband had a wandering eye and suspected him of stepping out on her yet again. So she went through his pockets in April of 1924, and she found a luggage claim ticket for a local train station. She had her friend use the ticket to retrieve what was left because she wanted to discover what her husband was hiding. She got a little more than she bargained for when the brown Gladstone bag was opened. Inside was a knife, a woman's undergarments, which had bloodstains. They returned the bag and the ticket to their previous locations and contacted the police like they never saw them. The police returned to the Waterloo station and waited for Patrick to come to claim the bag. When he did, he was immediately arrested, and it is here that we begin the story of Patrick and Emily. Patrick Mahone was born in Liverpool in 1890. He was an intelligent, athletic, and a churchgoer. <sighs> okay, <laughs> let's hear it. I know you have something to say about this. Can I just have, if, if there's a way for me to have a sound effects of a soapbox being dragged over so I can stand on it? The amount of times that I hear and read about a killer, a murderer, a serial killer, or some other nefarious individual that has their behavior initially described as a churchgoer, I'm going to scream. Being someone who attends church regularly, believes in anything religious, anything along those lines, and yet commits abhorrent acts does not make them a good person. Just because you go to church, that does not make you a good person. If I stand in a garage, I'm not a car. If I stand in a church, I'm not a Christian. So, can we please stop describing these people as churchgoers to try and somehow make their behavior shocking. I yeah. only included it so that way I could go on my little rant. 
about how much this bothers me. Yeah. Being a churchgoer is something that exists in your periphery. And if you are a pious and good religious person with moral standings, you will never be talked about on the show. Right. Yeah. Unless you're a victim. Yeah. So, so this churchgoer, let's learn a little bit more about him. <laughs> let me let me jump off my soapbox now. <laughs> and moving on. He was charming, good-looking, a smooth talker, and popular. Later in life, he became a bookkeeper and married his high school sweetheart, Jesse. Together, they had two children, but he was not flawless because he was vain. He was a philanderer. He was a gambler. He had a criminal record for theft and embezzlement. In September of 1916, Patrick broke into the house of Herman Lang, a manager at a local bank. He entered the home and startled the housemaid, Olivia Witkins. As she turned to flee, Patrick hit her in the head multiple times with a hammer, waited for her to wake. Once awake, he asked her for the keys to the bank. When he returned the next day, I don't know why he returned, he was arrested. He was sentenced to five years hard labor. Seriously, he beat this woman in the head in what can only be an attempt homicide, waited for her to wake up, asked for the keys to the bank, and then returned to what? Return the keys to the bank? I don't. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know why he would go back the next day. No clue. However, because he did, he was arrested. Yeah, I mean, good. I mean, once again, dumb criminals are how we make our bread and butter, but okay. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. it's just a miracle that Miss Whitkins survived this. Like, right? Getting hit in the hammer multiple times is typically not something that you just wake up from. Okay. And I don't know how many, I, I call them hammer sides. I don't know if that's a bad thing. I don't know, but I call Ham- them hammer. <gasps> like homicide, but hammer side. Yeah. And I've had quite a few of them. Um, <laughs> and so... Uh, it doesn't usually end well. Those things are brutal. And yeah. claw hammers are the worst, FYI, if you are ever wondering. Like, claw hammers are the worst. And I don't know which one this was. And I'm hoping it was just a little ball peen. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I think I read somewhere that she had, like, lots of hair or something. And that, Wonderful. That her hair, Way like, go. cushioned it or something. Like, he couldn't actually, locks. like hit her skull hard enough because it was, like, patted by the hair. Love it. Love it. Thick yeah. hair. And I, I love it because I have thick curly hair. But, <laughs> okay. So he's sentenced to five years hard labor and Jesse stood by him. She waited for him, aided in him finding a job once he was released. He was now employed as a sales manager at Console Automatic Aerators, a company that sold soda fountains. It was while he was employed here that he met a woman in 1923, 37-year-old Emily BLBK. She was a typist at the company and the two became close while working together. Emily was unmarried and apparently indifferent about Patrick being married with children, and the two started an affair. Emily fell in love with Patrick and even started telling people that they were engaged to be married and that they would move to South Africa once this happened. Three months into their relationship, Emily became pregnant. I don't know why we say became. We all know it's an act. Like, it's yeah. not, we're not talking Virgin Mary. It's not like, whoop, I'm pregnant. I don't know why I, you say that. I don't know. 
Okay. I mean, you do the etymology of that in the future. I mean, you do, I will, but I mean, you do become pregnant, but it's like the way that it makes it sound, it's almost like it's a happenstance that just happens to you. Like, you know, I became older. I became pregnant. (laughs) Like (laughs) it's a thing that happens. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm making you look into that. I will. I will. (laughs) Cause I want to know, sorry, that's complete side note. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Continue. (laughs) So Patrick invited Emily to spend time together at the Crumbles to celebrate the pregnancy and the impending marriage and their move. Along the Crumbles uh, were what referred to as the officer's cottages, and they had once been occupied by Coast Guards. Patrick rented one of these cottages under a false name and brought Emily to their love nest. April 12th, Emily packed up her belongings, moved into the cottage with Patrick and she believed he was leaving his wife and they were going to start their life together. Residents of the Crumbles had confirmed seeing her for a couple of days until she vanished. There was a new woman present at the cottage instead, a woman named Ethel Duncan. Patrick, under the name Pat Waller, had turned his attentions to Ethel, a 32-year-old single woman, whom he proceeded to woo. Ethel also knew that her Pat was married, though he told her he was not happy, and on the first day of their meeting, Ethel agreed to see him again. She received a telegram from Pat stating he would take that she should take the train to his bungalow in the Crumbles on April 17th, so they could spend the upcoming Easter holiday together. Patrick met Ethel at the station, and the two went to spend their romantic weekend in the Crumbles. While Ethel was at the bungalow over the course of the next three days, she saw a large trunk in the spare bedroom that Pat told her contained rare books. She thought nothing of it, and Pat then locked and screwed shut the door to that room. She still thought nothing of it. She spent the weekend with him in bliss and returned home that Monday. It was now that Jesse had her suspicions about Patrick messing around, and he had been missing over several weekends, and it was then that she had checked his pockets and found the ticket. When Patrick was arrested, his stories began. First, he claimed the reason that there was a knife and blood in his bag was because he had used the bag to bring home meat for his dogs. Okay. Lots of meat to hunt at the beach? Well... Police didn't (laughs) expect this to fly, and it did not because the blood was tested and it was determined not to be animal, but human. And this is when we introduce kind of the Uhlenhuth test, um, which happened in 1901. And I'm going to have Miss Mayday give us a primer on the Uhlenhuth. Yes, because we're going to talk more about essentially this Uhlenhuth test and Paul Uhlenhuth, which is the namesake for this test. Um, it's essentially the origin of the precipitant test. And this is essentially the first test that allows us to confirm the human species for blood. So it is a serological test, which utilizes antigens and antibodies. And it is a way for scientists now to determine that blood at crime scenes can essentially be categorized as human or not human. And furthermore, even within specific animal species, it can now determine like what particular species it is. And this was because Paul 
Uhlenhuth was essentially employed by German authorities in Greifswald, Germany, around 1900, um, because there was a case that they had of murdered boys. And so they knew of Paul Uhlenhuth's... Hang on. We're going to... That's in a future case. Don't you dare... No, nobody. I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to talk about it. I was just going to like preface it Hmm. that that's the case that essentially started. You have to stay tuned, people. Yeah, it started um, basically Paul down this path of developing this test. So he basically created this and developed this technique uh, on that case, which Miss Ruby Wild will go into more detail in another Mm -hmm. episode. It's true. Yes. And so the thing that we just take home from this is that this is now established in 1900. And so here we are in what, 1923? Oh, wait, this is four years later. So it's we're in 19, I want to say like 36, maybe. Oh, goodness. I should know this. (laughs) No, I think it's four years after... 1923. You're right. Yeah. Okay. So it's not, yeah, it's 1923 now. Right. And so, uh, essentially this test has, uh, been around now for about 20 years and it has developed and is more like recognizable, uh, way of confirming whether or not blood is human or animal. And so this gets applied in this particular case. And this is what causes, once we have the results from this, now Patrick begins his quote unquote confession. And that led to a search of their love bungalow. Patrick claimed that he and Emily had gotten into an argument at the bungalow because he would not leave his life, his wife for her. Well, life and wife. I mean, dude, it's everything. They struggled and she hit her head on a coal bucket, killing her. And okay, coal bucket, coal scuttle, what is this thing? Yeah. Like, we're just going to get into it now. So that way, when it comes up later, like, yeah, we know what we're talking about. So, um, again, this is the differences between American English and British English. Uh, what we know as a coal bucket, right? Something that holds coal for furnaces to heat rooms is also referred to as a coal scuttle. And the origin of that word in itself, there was like a old French word, oat, which is H-O-T-T-E, which means basket. And so a coal bucket or a coal pail or a coal scuttle are all one and the same. It's a bucket-like container that holds coal, right? And it's usually metal and it's usually shaped as a vertical cylinder, So if you can imagine like a large fountain pen nib that's upright, um, or sometimes it looks like a cornucopia basket. Okay. So yeah, it's shaped either as like a long cylinder with one end that is essentially designed specifically for like pouring coal out. Yeah. Right. Um, Yeah. Like a funnel almost. mm -hmm. And then you're saying that, and I'm thinking like a vehicle, like transmission fluid adding funnel. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like a fountain pen (laughs) Um, because it's shaped very similar, just upright. And then, or like a cornucopia basket. So if you see one of those cornucopia baskets, uh, these, these are coal scuttles essentially. And fun fact, uh, the reason why this is like of a little bit more interest is that in 1917, there is a serial killer who utilizes a coal scuttle 
in the commission of some of her crimes. And we will talk about that as well in another I feel like 90% of what we say is that's upcoming. That's upcoming. Don't worry. We got this. Yeah. It's very unusual how overlapping a lot of these things are. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, old timey cases, dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay. All right. Going back back to to this coal scuttle, this is what he says she hit her head on, right? Correct. And it was then he panicked, wanted to save his marriage and family, and he proceeded to dismember her with a knife and saw that happened to be bought same day or uh, this before the burner. So, yeah. So while they were Yeah. In his brain, he's like, she accidentally died because she hit her head on this coal scuttle. Now I must dismember her. Yeah. With these things that I bought before she died. Okay. That happened to be at the bungalow. Okay. Okay. So while searching the bungalow, they found some of Emily's remains. Uh, She had been dismembered, disemboweled, partially cremated. They found parts of her in the brown trunk, that large brown trunk, other parts in a hat box, a biscuit tin, and a saucepan. In the fireplace, there were ashes and bones. Patrick was interviewed, and he did admit to the fact that the body remains were that of Emily. He admitted to burning her head and then crushing the skull and scattering the parts of her skull along the beach. Oh, my goodness. At this point, Pathologist Bernard Spilsbury was called in. All right, Bernard, he's going to come up in so many cases. So, Miss Mayday, give us a little background. First dot of Bernard Spilsbury. Okay, so Bernard studied at Oxford University. He received a degree in natural sciences. And basically, he got into the School of Medicine at the University of London. While he was a student, um, there attending medical school, he basically got an internship at St. Mary's Hospital in Paddington. And this is the first time essentially he encounters the field of forensics. And St. Mary's, which had been established in 1845, it was renowned as being a very good research hospital. And specifically at that place, uh, there were some forensic scientists. Um, and they were trying to essentially develop pathology and forensic medicine at the University of London. So this is where Bernard basically gets mentored by pathologist Augustus Joseph Pepper. And remember, like I was saying at the early 1900s, forensic science wasn't really very well developed it essentially starts to really take hold here at St. Mary's under Pepper and Spilsbury. And as Pepper became older, Spilsbury began taking on more of the role of the pathologist, the forensic pathologist, and he started getting involved in more and more cases. So basically there was a time period between like 1910 to 1915, where he ends up working some very public cases that essentially establish him as the authority on forensic science. And Some of these cases, for example, which we will talk about more in subsequent episodes. Oh, he winds up in so many. Yeah. Uh, He's very prolific and he becomes essentially the most famous forensic pathologist of his time. He is like the real life Sherlock Holmes. What really made him like like well-known was uh, these 
cases of these murdered women that get collectively known as brides in a bath. And in any case, uh, he becomes really well known for going to court and he has this very um, like gregarious personality and he essentially uh, has just a lot of personality when he's at court and it eventually becomes his downfall, but we'll get more on that later. Mm-hmm. What we need to know is that basically Bernard Spilsbury is the most well-known forensic pathologist of this time. And he is now working on Emily's case. So he was called in and I, I, I'm having a hard time getting through this. I know. I know. Okay. We have experience of walking into crime scenes. And if I were to see this, I'm like, I'm, I'm seriously like itching myself. Like I just, mm, okay. He walked into a horror show. Not for the reason that you think, but from the perspective of someone who preserves crime scenes, he saw his constables picking up body parts with their bare hands because they claimed they never wore gloves. Yeah, it wasn't a thing. It just wasn't a thing. I, um, yeah, I I know. I, (laughs) it's okay. It's okay, Ruby. We're just going to move on a little. Um, Bernard needed to reassemble Emily in order to determine the cause of her death. Her head remained missing because he had scattered it throughout the crumbles, but it was determined that she was indeed pregnant at the time of her death. Bernard was unable to definitively find the cause of her death, but did conclude that she could not have died from the accidental head wound as described by Patrick. Her death had to come from more than a single strike as she also appeared to have bruising on her neck and or shoulder. He explained, he examined the coal scuttle that Patrick claims Emily hit her head on. And Bernard was able to prove that this bucket was not strong enough to hold up the sufficient force that was necessary to cause a fatal blow. So for the trial, Bernard made a miniature crime scene to scale to demonstrate what Patrick claimed happened could not have happened. And this set is still located in the Scotland Yard's Black Museum. Miniature crime scenes. I know. Okay. This is essentially what Bernard would do. Again, like I was saying, he was very, um, like, he was a character in court. And this is kind of one of the reasons that made him really famous because he brought these miniatures into court for demonstration to the jurors. And Miss Ruby Wilde knows a lot about little crime scene miniatures. <laughs> I do. Because it is one of my obsessions to do. Um, I, I know that sounds really weird, <laughs> but it is one of my major hobbies is to create little miniature crime scenes and I do them as accurately as possible with as much detail as possible. That is um, as close as I can make it to what would physically happen. But I do have to give full credit to Francis Glessner Lee, who uh, made the nutshell studies of unexplained death dioramas. And what she initially did is back in the, I want to say 1920s, 1940s, somewhere in there. Um, she scaled her uh, images for one inch equals six is one feet. So she completely scaled everything down. And using that 
people were able to use these miniature crime scenes to basically go through the crime scenes without having to be locked there, like we were talking. It's their own little 360 image, but in a miniature scale. And her crime scenes were actually donated in 1946 to the Baltimore, Maryland Medical Examiner's Office, and it's used for forensic seminars. And she has since actually inspired numerous other artists to create miniatures and miniature crime scenes, and I am one of them. And I I really do spend a lot of detail, and if you go on our Instagram and or Facebook, uh, you may see that I have... You have an example of one of your videos. I I do have videos and pictures of some miniature crime scenes that I've done. And if you guys want, I can post more because Lord knows I've done so many because it's a great hobby of mine and I appreciate it. And so the fact that he did this to bring to court for this particular crime scene to show that it was not possible for the her death to happen as it was, it's just so pivotal to think that something that's my hobby could actually help in a court case. Like, yeah. Yeah. So he, and that's what Spillsbury did. Spillsbury utilized experimentation yeah, as well as like recreating crime scenes. So like reconstruction, yes. to essentially either affirm or debunk certain theories of what happened in crime scenes. And so he was essentially showing that he could debunk his confession um, because he with this miniature crime scene, he was able to show that she would not have been able to hit her head one time on this coal scuttle with enough force to kill her. Correct. And then furthermore, Patrick had claimed that he purchased the axe and chef's knife after Emily died, but a record of the purchase shows that it was from before. And that led to the conclusion that this was a premeditated homicide. His behavior following, aside from the dismemberment, was to bring Ethel to the bungalow. He stated this was because he did not want to be alone in the house with Emily's dead body. The jury didn't believe any of this and declared him guilty and sentenced him to death by hanging. And that happened September of 1924. Now, our telling of this case doesn't end yet because this case is what resulted in a crime scene murder bag policy. And that is basically where all detectives were required to carry a murder bag. And Miss Mayday is going to go into what this means as a murder bag. Right. So remember how I was saying that forensic science was really coming into its own at the beginning of the 19th century. Yes. And Spilsbury was basically one of those scientists who really brought the science um, into a more structured and... um, basically established it as a genuine science. And so he did this by developing new methods for evidence collecting. And one of those things were, were this quote unquote murder bag. And essentially before his improved methods, police would basically grab evidence with their bare hands and the evidence was really poorly preserved. But we know that at this time we were utilizing evidence, so physical objects left behind at crime scenes, um, to scientifically analyze them. And so Spillsbury understood how important it was to preserve that type of evidence in a way that we could reliably analyze them. So one of those things included gathering evidence with covered hands 
Thank and, goodness. <laughs> and other than the disgusting ew factor, it's preservation factor. Right. Because what we knew at the time was that fingerprints was a thing, right? Yeah. They, they were very aware of the fact that we could identify individuals based on fingerprints left yeah. behind an object. So if the police officers were collecting things with their hands, they were essentially contaminating the evidence with their own fingerprints. So again, Spillsbury put together this like murder bag, they called it, which was essentially a crime scene kit that we would have today yes. that contains all of our PPE and items. Wait, for- elaborate PPE. Oh, personal protection uh, equipment. So look at maybe an all court reportery. Yes. So this protective equipment um, is essentially like gloves and masks, things that protect you from the evidence and protect the evidence from you. So at this time, he was a huge proponent of how police officers started covering their hands, wearing gloves, essentially, before collecting evidence, even though we know to this day that that sometimes doesn't Mm -hmm. always happen. Mm -hmm. And he also basically told them that they needed to store it in some sort of box to preserve it. So essentially protecting it from outside elements and and things that could potentially contaminate it. So this murder box essentially or murder bag is now required at this time going forward by all detectives. You know, it's a bag filled with gloves and uh, tools to recover evidence. So things like forceps and tweezers and magnifying glasses, rulers, things like that. So uh, our modern day crime scene kit that we pack up, load up and bring out to scenes originates from Bernard and his influence on forensic science. And it's based on his observations from this crime scene, witnessing people say, oh, we don't wear gloves. Right. And him just saying, what? Why? And so, like, that's why this case is so pivotal when it comes to forensic science. Yes. So, moving on, the cottage where this murder occurred was originally rented out to the morbid spectators, as we learned from the Bender, you know, family, where people just want their own little souvenirs and everything. But it was eventually destroyed in 1955. And, okay, moving on. Further from this case, the cuttings from this case were found in the home of another murder, which means like the newspaper cuttings. December 5th, 1924, in Crowborough, Sussex, lived a man named Norman Thorne. He had a chicken farm and lived in a converted boarding house. He was engaged to a woman named Elsie Cameron. He had yet to produce the ring or the date for them to be married. Elsie grew tired of waiting and went to Norman's house to discuss their future. Elsie was never seen again. Norman claimed that she had never made it to his house, but numerous witnesses had seen her headed in the direction of his farm. When police went to question him again, they also dug around on his property and found Elsie's suitcase. It was around then that Norman changed his story, claiming that when he refused to put a ring on it, Elsie hanged herself in his home. When he found her, he was so distraught, he not only cut her down, but cut her up into four pieces and buried those pieces throughout his property. We have Spillsbury again. And he examined Elsie's remains and determined that he saw no evidence of hanging, but he did see wounds to her head, face, elbows, and legs that would have been enough to cause her death by shock. The defense hired a man named Robert Bronte, who claimed he, along with six other doctors, found evidence of hanging. 
the police went back to the home and they not only did not find marks on the beam from the alleged rope hanging from the beam, but in its place, they found a thick layer of undisturbed dust. Norman was found guilty in 30 minutes and sentenced to be hanged. So the reason that I brought this up is, like I said, it seems like the guy cut out the clippings, figured that he could get away with it, too, based on chopping up, figuring out what Spillsbury detected from the previous crime. And he didn't get away with it. And I don't know why he thought that would work. Because learning from mistakes or something, I don't know. But the other thing a lot of people don't realize that we do in the field is we look for dust disturbances. Right. Like, and I did have to on the stand describe what a dust disturbance was. And Mm -hmm. what that is, is a film of dust that you see on a surface. And when you touch it, you take the dust away and it leaves a void where you touched. Well, When it comes to that, like that void means someone's been there or has not been there. So dust disturbance actually tells us quite a lot. Yeah. And it was crucial in this case because, you know, he said that she had hung herself from this particular beam. And when they went up there, they saw this Mm -hmm. undisturbed dust. Yeah. So there was nothing, nothing contacted that area because the dust was still present. Yep. Could not have happened. So in closing... Going back to Irene, if she taught us anything, it's to always wear something that is memorable, like her green velvet coat. Yay. Yes. So I hope you guys enjoyed that one. That was a fun one to research. I really did enjoy that one. Yeah. It was crazy how like this little crumble, like this little area, the crumbles, Yeah, you know, was... It seems like it's like a relatively sleepy town. It seems yeah. like it's like a beach destination that you would go for some R&R and yet it found itself right in the middle of some really serious cases. Yeah. I mean, it it is fascinating, your little resort destination town. And I mean, come on, we all know homicides happen everywhere. Right. But yeah, it, it was just crazy and fascinating. And like I said, it was a very pivotal case to establish what a crime scene kit is today. Yeah. And I hope you guys enjoyed that. So hopefully you guys join us on another round and uh, we'll see you guys shortly. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Homicide is produced by J.H. Cabral. Additional editing and theme music produced by Matt Beck. A special thanks to Bonnie Navarro Photography and Bombshell Betty's Calendar. Please visit bombshellbettyscalendars.com for more information. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Vintage Homicide Podcast. Please subscribe wherever you prefer to download your podcasts and join us next time for more tantalizing tales of murder and mystery. Murder and mystery.